if you would, to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 731. Luke chapter 7. Today we start a sermon series on Jesus' parables. Um, And it's so appropriate that that today we are looking at this parable that that makes us think about um, our relationship with the Lord and I pray brings a sense of renewal and our understanding of who we are and all that God has done for us in Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verse 41. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love that passage that I read for you before the pastoral prayer from 1 Timothy. I think the way Paul sums up his life is such a beautiful description of what it looks like for the Lord to redeem someone from their sin and to call them to ministry, even though Paul was well aware that he did not deserve such a call on his life. It might be the case that you and I, we read this, we think, well, well, Paul's being a little bit hard on himself. Speaks about himself in some pretty um, dark terms when he talks about himself being the chief of sinners and the one who needed God's grace and mercy perhaps more than anyone. But you think back to Paul's life and you think about who he was before he encountered Jesus and you think about the dramatic difference that Jesus made in his life on the road to Damascus. And you and I see the change, don't we? We see this transformation that happened in in Paul's life. And he was filled from that moment on with this passion that everybody would know that Christ came into the world to save whom? Sinners. That Christ came into the world to save sinners, and that he showed Paul immeasurable riches of his mercy and his grace in allowing him to have a relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus. I think about my own life, and I think about my own testimony, and and that's my testimony as well. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am one for whom he needed to die. You see, it's interesting to get away from your testimony for a few years and in some ways you forget about just how much you needed Jesus and the significance of all that he has done for you through his life, death, and resurrection. And if you're not careful, something that ought to be the most important message that you and I could ever hear and the most important message that we could ever proclaim to others becomes ho-hum to us if we're not careful. 
And we think, yeah, I've, I've heard that stuff about the gospel before. Yeah, I've heard all that message, but, but teach me something higher. Teach me something deeper. Teach me something that is kind of advanced level theology. And over the years, Tim Keller has probably done the most for me to help me understand that you never get over the gospel. There is no higher, better thing to which you achieve or understand and then you love the Lord more. But Christian maturity is returning to the good news of the gospel more and more and that truth gets deeper into your heart such that you look back and you think, wow, I'm so in awe of who God is and all that he's done for me in Jesus I became a Christian sometime around the age of 10 at something that some of you have never been to. It was called a revival. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. For one week, this guy came in and quite literally scared me to death. And I went home at night and shaking and hoping I was going to make it back next night. And I remember talking to my parents about wanting to be a a Christian because this seemed like a really good option at the time. (laughs) They took me to talk to the pastor, and I was soon baptized and sent me on this journey of wrestling. I can remember being in college, and really in college where the Lord started working in my life and events that I never would have chosen. I look back on my life, I never would have chosen the events that led me to become more involved in Campus Crusade for Christ on my campus. I never would have thought this would be a good plan for my life. And Lord, through His grace and His mercy, I can remember being on my knees in my room, wrestling with the Lord. I can remember that. I wanted to understand who God's called me to be and the mission that he's placed on my life. But the farther I get away from that experience, and perhaps you're like me, the farther you get away from that experience, there can be a temptation for all of these things that we say we believe, even this creed that we confess every week, that if you pay attention, we are confessing our belief in things that apart from God's grace and mercy to help us see and believe, you and I would not. And I can start to believe my own press. I can start to think, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a 50 guy. Maybe I'm not a 500 guy in the parable of Jesus. I mean, I look around, I can find people who are worse off than me. Can you? Probably. And I can start to believe that, you know, I'm in a way, I haven't been forgiven as much, not nearly as much as that person over there. You preach enough sermons and you wear a robe enough and conduct funerals and weddings. And, and even, let me tell you this, just to boast a little bit, get invited to be a keynote speaker at a virtual worship thing. Some of you have emailed me and said, wow, good job. And the more and the more that kind of stuff happens, if we're not careful, the good news of the gospel loses its beauty. 
And it loses its power in our lives, not because it's any less true, but because we sometimes confuse our sanctification, our process in growing in Christ's likeness with our justification, all that God had to do through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to reconcile us to himself. And we can start thinking that maybe I'm adding something to my salvation along the way. Jesus told this parable um, in the context of a meal that had just happened. I would encourage you later to go back and read all of Luke chapter 7, kind of how it unfolds. But, but Jesus gets invited to a meal. A Pharisee named Simon invites him in to eat, and Jesus accepts the invitation. He goes in. There's probably a table in the middle. They're probably laying down with their feet out from the table, leaning in and sharing food over a common meal. And then something happens. Verse 37 of Luke 7. I invite you to look at it. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to weep, wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. This woman of the city, this woman who is labeled as a sinner, finds out that Jesus is eating with a Pharisee, and she is so bold that she crosses all of these cultural lines and expectations, and she goes in, and I'm going to tell you, she made quite a scene. She made quite a scene. That word there for weeping is not like she kind of got misty-eyed. But she was, she was crying. I'm ugly crying, what we call it in our house. Perhaps you've done that before. She wets Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. Kisses his feet. Anoints them with ointment. Everything that this lady is doing is an expression of her devotion, of her love for Christ and who he is. Perhaps she's heard that Jesus has been labeled the friend of sinners. And so she parades into this party and she does this thing that scandalizes Simon. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, listen, this, this is great. He, he sees Jesus allowing this woman to do this to him, and, and this is the conclusion he reaches. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. So in his mind... Jesus isn't the prophet that everybody's making him out to be because he should have known what kind of woman this is that's walking in and doing this to him. And his willingness to allow this to happen is an indication that he doesn't understand the law, that he doesn't understand who it is that God would call him to be as a prophet or a rabbi. So he sees this as something that invalidates Jesus' claim. And Jesus knows what's going on. And listen, listen to what Jesus does. 
Jesus answering to him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Which, when you read the Gospels, that's always a dangerous place to be. On the other side of Jesus telling a story. I have something, something to say to you. A certain moneylender had two people who owed him money. One owed him 50 denarii, the other owed him 500 denarii. He canceled the debt of both. Then he asked a pretty obvious question, which do you think loved him more? Let me give you an example in your own um, life, perhaps. Perhaps I show up at a restaurant, I see you across the restaurant, I'm feeling particularly generous and kind this day, and I tell the waiter, hey, just give me their, give me their tab. Anybody ever done that for you? This is the most glorious thing, isn't it? Just like, well, if I'd known that, I'd gotten the filet, right? That's moving. Fills you with gratitude to the person who did it. Now, imagine that someone from your bank calls you and says, Hey, I got great news. Someone paid off your mortgage. How are you going to respond or feel to that person? In comparison to the, to the meal? I mean, the meal is nice and you're happy and you appreciate it, but, but paying off your mortgage, you would, you would feel this sense of indebtedness, would you not? You'd feel this sense of how in the world could I ever repay this person for such an extravagant, crazy, unexpected, over-the-top kind of gift. So Jesus asked Simon kind of a, an easy question, which one will love him more? Simon may have felt like some of you feel in a Sunday school class when the answer is Jesus, and you're like, but it, maybe it's not. Seems too easy, seems too obvious. And Simon says, um, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Her sins, Jesus doesn't act like she doesn't have them. He doesn't act like he is unaware of who she is or her need to repent or her need to seek salvation and forgiveness. But he understands that she has understood, not in a mental ascent way, not in passing a test way, but she has, she's understood who she is before the Lord, her sin and her need for grace and forgiveness and mercy. And because she's grasped that, she has responded to who Jesus is in extravagant ways because the love that she's received from the Lord is extravagant. But not Simon. Simon hadn't quite yet understood the significance of who God is 
he hasn't understood the significance of who Jesus is in his presence. So he, he's kind of ho-hum. Maybe he's got a few sins. Maybe he's got some stuff that he could work on. But he's definitely not the worst person that he's ever met. And this parable of Jesus penetrates through all of that and helps us understand that, that salvation and Christianity is not about. It's not about us being kind of bad people going in kind of a bad direction and we just need a little bit of religious coaching or, or help. But they were, we were, as Paul would say, dead in our sins and our trespasses. But God in his great mercy has made us alive together with Christ. That this is the good news of the gospel. And I want to challenge you to think about your own life. Do you love the Lord a lot? Do you love, do you love the Lord a lot? Or are your affections for the Lord not what you would want them to be? It's just the case that you and I, as we walk through our lives and as we experience everything that comes before us in our Christian life, that it is somewhat normal for us to, to, to walk away slowly, to shift away from the good news of the gospel and our heart and our affections for the Lord aren't what we would want them to be. As I was thinking about this season of renewal and this sermon series and preparing for this stage of life in our church's history, I kind of Googled what would Tim Keller read about these things. You ever done that? You could do worse. And he wrote the foreword to a book that, that I've just started that I intend to read. Anybody who wants to read it, I can read alongside if you'd like. It's called Dynamics of the Spiritual Life. It's written by a guy named Richard F. Loveless. Can I just tell you, I know next to nothing about Richard F. Loveless. But I read the preface, and this is what, um, or in the forward, this is what Tim Keller says in the forward. He says, Loveless reached a conclusion that has become a key component of my own writing and teaching. Revivals and renewals are a necessary part of the life of the church because the default mode of the human heart, right, revival is a pattern repeatedly used by the Holy Spirit to reconnect Christian communities with the power of the gospel. Another paragraph, he says this, Loveless explains that renewal is needed because Christians so easily fall away from a full understanding of the gospel into cheap grace, legalism, and moralism. Christians so easily fall away from a full understanding of the gospel into cheap grace. What is cheap grace? Cheap grace is to say, yeah, I believe in salvation through faith and what Christ did. And because I can't do anything to add to it, I'll take that salvation and I'll just go live my life however I want to live it. Because after all, I'm saved by grace through faith. It's not my work, so I'm just going to go out and just live my life. Or legalism. Legalism. 
This is probably the one that I'm more prone to. If you want to look like behind the workings of Wayne Swan's heart. I'm more of a legalist, so to speak. I was in seminary. One time Mary went home. I was waiting tables at a restaurant that's now departed. Some of you probably ate there. I may have even been your server. And I worked a double shift, and Mary went home. And there I was by myself, and I woke up on Sunday morning, and I was like, it's time to go to church. Except I checked the clock, and I had slept through church. And I felt like the chief of all sinners, friends. And I went down to Jim and Nick's on 150, and guess who came in the door? My friends from church. So I just like slid lower, right? But legalism is that that idea that you and I are going to add to or earn salvation or God's love. Or moralism. We make Christianity basically just a set of morals and ethics that you and I believe and adhere to. And those who follow them are the good people and those who don't are the bad people. And none of those things is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of all that God has done for us sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And through our faith in him, you and I receive the very righteousness of Jesus. We don't get what we deserve, but we get what Christ earned on our behalf. That which you and I could never earn in our own power or our own ability. And our response to that, our response to that is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. Not legalism, not cheap grace, not just moralism but a life transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want you to pray this week for our church. Anybody's writing anything down, here's a good thing for you to write down. Just, Just pray that God would do a work of renewal in our church in these days that that you and I would understand and appreciate all that we owe the Lord and all that he's forgiven us in Jesus and that our hearts would be moved to love him much in response to what he's done for us. Would you do that this week? Pray pray that God would do that in your own life. Pray that God would do that in the lives of other people who are a part of what God's doing here at Mountain Root Baptist Church in these days. Because I think... I think if God is pleased to answer those kind of prayers, that people might look at our lives as they're transformed and renewed and ask themselves the question, what in the world's going on with those people? What in the world's going on with those people? And then we'll have the opportunity to tell them that, that we love much because we've been forgiven much in Christ. May God be pleased to do that work of renewal um, in and through us, even in these days. I invite you, if you would, to pray with me. God, we thank you for we thank you for your word, and Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a friend of sinners. 
we confess to you that we have not loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we confess to you that, that we are prone to look to our own righteousness or our own ability or our own moral integrity or character or resume for our sense of confidence before you. But we, we acknowledge that we are in need of your grace and your mercy in Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that during these days in the life of our church that you would renew in us an understanding of the good news of the gospel, that we would understand that we have been forgiven much and that you would call us to love you and to love others much in return. Thank you for your kindness and your grace that you've extended to us in Jesus. We offer this prayer in Christ's name. Amen.